Women are powerful and have accomplished great things. Yet, sometimes we suffer from self-doubt, fear, and limiting beliefs. We often believe that we are not good enough. These negative beliefs stop us from achieving our goals. Welcome to Sprinting to Success, a podcast dedicated to women who have experienced struggles, yet found ways to step into their power, their greatness, and learn to embrace challenges. These women will share their stories and give you insights to help you on your path so you can follow your dreams. And now, here's your host, Esme Lawrence. Welcome. My name is Esme Lawrence, the host of this podcast, Sparenting to Success. My guest today, mission is making the world safe for humanity one conversation at a time. It does this through speaking, coaching, and training as one of the world's foremost experts in empathetic listening with his book, Just Listen, becoming the top book on listening in the world. My guest today is Dr. Mark Golston. Mark, welcome. Well, thank you for having me, Esme. I've been looking forward to this. I've been sprinting to come to this podcast. (laughs) Yes, thank you so much. So you're a psychiatrist, and I'm going to take you back. Tell me about your childhood. Well, my childhood, I grew up outside Boston, and it was, you know, the the usual kind of stressors in childhood. I was the youngest of three children, uh, and my parents are hardworking, and uh, my dad was a product of the Depression. But I think one of the best ways to have your audience get to know me is I share this story about one of my, probably my greatest personal accomplishment is I dropped out of medical school twice and finished. Hmm, twice and finished. And I don't know anyone who dropped out of medical school twice and finished. And I dropped out because I think I had untreated depression. And, uh, And what happened is the second time I dropped out, they wanted to kick me out because I was passing, but they were losing matching funds. And so I was at a low point in my life and I met with the Dean of the school who cares about fundraising. And I think he was, you know, he, he knew that he wanted to have me uh, withdraw, but I think he didn't want me to go off the deep end. So he, he referred me to the Dean of students and uh, and I met with and the dean of students called me and said, uh, you need to come in here. We have a letter from the dean of the school. And I was at a low point as me and um, really at a low point. And, uh, and the, uh, I went to the dean of students and I read the letter from the main dean. And it said, I've met with Mr. Goulston. I wasn't a doctor then. And we talked about alternate careers. And I'm advising the promotions committee that he be asked to withdraw. And I was low and I looked at the Dean of Students and I said, what does this mean? And he said, you've been kicked up. Oh. And I'm, I'm, I guess I'm spiritual. I'm not that religious, but it felt like a gunshot wound. I remember, it, it, and I know what that feels like because I had a perforated abdomen 10 years ago. I almost died. It felt exactly like, and, and when he said that, I, I felt something wet on my cheeks and I thought I was bleeding. So uh, not to be overly religious about this, but I kept looking at my fingers and it was tears. 
and I think I was so raw and open and vulnerable. And then he did something that not only changed my life, but changed the course of it. And so I came from a background, kind of a depression age of parents. And so I grew up with this feeling that you're only worth what you can do in the world. You're only worth what you produce. That's not an unusual way to grow up. And I probably felt like I couldn't do much. And he looked at me uh, and he said, um, he said, uh, you didn't mess up, but you are messed up. So you, what, tell me about the low points. Like what was going on in your life? Why was it at a low point? Well, I think because I was in medical school. And what happened is I, I couldn't hold on to the, the information. I'd highlight my books. They were all highlighted in yellow. And I just hoped I would be able to hold on to the information. And, uh, and so what happened is I took one year off and then I worked in blue collar jobs. And I came back and my mind was okay for another six months. And then it fell apart again. So I asked for another leave of absence. I was still passing courses. I don't know how. And so uh, my mind just wasn't really working. I, I, I couldn't hold on to information. And I, don't th and I wasn't being treated for depression. So maybe that would have prevented it. So if you're listening, you know, go get treatment if you're feeling down like I felt. And so I'm, so I'm with the dean of students. And he looked at me. And again, I felt kind of broken. And imagine hearing this when you're not used to unconditional love. Right. He said, you know, uh, you, uh, you're not, you didn't mess up. You're not failing anything, but you are messed up. And then he said, but if you got unmessed up, um, I think the school would be glad that they gave you a second chance. So I started to tear up with all the just love. And then, and then he said, and if you, and even if you don't get unmessed up, even if you don't become a doctor, even if you don't do anything the rest of your life, I'd be proud to know you. Wow. Because, because, you had somebody in your corner. That's sweet. He said, so even if you do nothing, I'd be proud to know you because you have a streak of goodness in you that the world needs. And we don't grade at medical school. And you have no idea how much the world needs that goodness. And you won't know it till you're 35. But you have to make it till you're 35. And I'm crying with all this kind of compassion. <clears throat> and he said, um, and then he pointed, and then he said, you deserve to be on this planet. And you're going to let me help you. And I remember I couldn't even look at him in the eye. I was just tearing up with I don't know. And, and, and I think what was happening, it's like I was plummeting and he put his love and belief in me under my plummeting. So I took another leave of absence. I actually went out and worked at some, a place called the Menninger Foundation, a big psychiatric foundation, uh, which was in Topeka, Kansas back then. And I felt kind of lost, but I, I seemed to have this way to reach other people. You know, uh, and so I came back, finished medical school, went to UCLA for my psychiatric training. And then I had a mentor uh, in my psychiatric training who was the pioneer, probably the main pioneer in the study of suicide, a fellow named uh, Dr. Ed, Edwin Schneidman. And he started 
referring me patients who had made multiple suicide attempts. And I focused on that for over 20 years, and none of my patients died by suicide. That is incredible. Well, yeah. And, and I'll tell you, it's pretty simple, but it's not easy. Uh, I think my main tool was I would just find them in their hopelessness in the dark night of the soul, and I would just keep them company there until they started to cry. So then how do you find them in their darkness, um, the, the worst time of their life? How do you find them if you don't live with them? Do they come to a place where you can monitor them? Uh, well, you know, I'd see them as patients. So what would happen, well, I'll share an anecdote with you because this sort of changed everything. And I have a book called Just Listen, which I'm kind of humbled by. It became the top book on listening in the world. It's in 25 languages. I've spoken a couple times in Moscow, teaching them empathy. You know, it's, it seems every other country except the United States is interested in listening. The United isn't, States... Isn't that ironic? Because that's where you're from, the U.S. That's where I'm from. Well, you know, the, you know, the United States are filled with know-it-alls, but that's a whole other story. Um, <laughs> which your prime minister would say, I think I know a know-it-all in your country, Mark. Uh, <laughs> we won't talk <laughs> politics on this podcast. No, no, don't, don't, don't get us started. I'm but, not going to get you started on, on politics, Mark. <laughs> I, know, I, I won't have you, I know that you won't stop. <laughs> but I got to share this story and, uh, and then I, then I want to give some practical things to your listeners. So, uh, so Dr. Schneidman used to refer me, what would happen is there would be patients who needed to be discharged from UCLA hospital who were still suicidal, but they weren't acutely suicidal, but you can't keep them there forever. And so some of the residents didn't want to see them as outpatients because they were afraid that they were still suicidal. So Dr. Schneidman would go up, do a consultation and refer them to me. And probably the most profound one was a patient named Nancy. And she came to see me. And she made three attempts. And I didn't think I was helping her. And she didn't make eye contact. I'm looking in your eyes right now. But she would be like this. Right. Disengaged. Disengaged. And I, and I used to work once a month at a, a state psychiatric hospital, moonlighting. You know, So sometimes you don't sleep for 36 hours. Wow. And I came back on a Monday, and I didn't think I was helping her, and I'd been seeing her about you know, nine months, and that's the longest she'd gone without going back in the hospital and making a suicide attempt. But I didn't think I was helping her, and she, she rarely said anything, and she rarely looked in my eyes. And as I was seated with her, all the color in the room turned to black and white. So I'm looking out at the room, and it's black and white. And I thought I was having a seizure or a stroke. I'm a medical doctor. So I did a neurologic exam on myself. So she's just steering like this, and I'm going like this and like this and like this, and I'm tapping my elbows and my knees to see if I was having a stroke or a seizure. And I realized I wasn't. And then I had this crazy idea that I was looking at the world through her eyes. And so because I was sleep deprived, I blurted something out that normally I wouldn't. And I said, Nancy. I didn't know it was so bad, and I can't help you kill yourself, but if you do, I will still think well of you, I'll miss you, and maybe I'll understand why you had to. And I thought, I just gave her permission to kill herself. 
And I thought, oh, I really blew it. And then she looked at me for the first time as me. I mean, she looked right into me. And I thought she was going to say, thank you for, thank you for understanding. I'm long overdue. And I said, what are you thinking? And she looked at me and she said, if you can really understand why I might have to kill myself to get out of this pain, maybe I won't need to. Wow. You got to her right there, didn't you? And then she came back. The room came back. And, and so what I've been trying to teach people in the world is how do you listen into people? And actually, I've been in two documentaries that deal with suicide. Uh, one is called Stay Alive, a per, a, an intimate conversation about suicide prevention. And I interview a fellow named Kevin Hines. He jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, and he's, he's been you know, in the press, a, a CNN hero for change. And then I'm part of another documentary by a friend of mine whose son uh, died by suicide uh, two years ago. And his son left a suicide note that said, tell my story. So uh, that So what's his story? Tell me his story. Well, his story, what happened is uh, this, this friend who reached out to me because he knew I was a suicide specialist. This was, this was way after his son killed himself. He has a, uh, a TEDx talk called The Most Important Conversation You Can Have With Your Teenager. And it's chilling because he's a serial entrepreneur. And if you watch the video, he talks about being on vacation with his wife for her birthday. And, uh, uh, and they're in uh, Mexico, and they get a text message from his son that says, uh, don't blame yourself. I'm so sorry. Goodbye. He starts screaming. He calls his mother-in-law, who's back at their home, and he says, go find Ryan. And she walks, he runs around the house, and she goes up in the attic, and he'd hung himself. Oh, that's so sad. And he left two notes. One note had all the codes for his computers. And the second note was tell my story. And I think what he, and what Jay took that to mean is tell my story that there's a lot of people who are depressed and they don't tell anyone. So he created a documentary called tell my story. You can find it at chooselife.org, chooselife.org. And it's, it's heart wrenching, but inspiring. And he's just, he, he went around speaking to people of lost relatives speaking to people who've tried to uh, kill themselves, uh, uh, speaking to treatment places. And I, I'm at the end as one of the experts. And so, um, but, so but to get, go so ahead. Far, how do you tell when someone is depressed? Well, you see a change in their behavior. They're sullen. They, they don't want to be bothered. Uh, 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 Jay gave me this incredible quote that, was so, so profound and so simple. He said, you know, when you ask people, when you ask a kid, how are you doing? And they say, um, and, you, and uh, they say, I'm great. They're usually good. But when they say, I'm fine, they're not. Mm. So profound. Wow. I mean, I can just feel it right now as you said yeah. it, because you can. And so when you see a change in behavior, people are being moody, sullen, uh, leave me alone, especially when you're trying to get a teenager to open up, or this can be a spouse. So one of the things that we've developed as a tool of getting through to people is something we call interventional empathy. Interventional empathy. So uh, 
you may or may not know of a uh, technology called CRISPR. CRISPR goes into genes and fixes them. It goes, you know, and it changes genetic coding, C-R-I-S-P-R. So what interventional empathy does is it goes into the hopelessness in the dark night of the soul and it touches it with empathy. So if you're listening, you might want to write this down because one of the tools of interventional empathy is what we call the eight words. So imagine your mom or your spouse and you're worried about someone and they're in a dark place and they say, I'm fine. No, no, just leave me alone. You know, and, th and then you back off or you don't want to upset them or you say, well, you know, you know, if you want to talk about it and they scare you. And the way the eight words work is you let them say whatever they say and you say, yeah, I know you're fine, but eight words. And they're going to be annoyed. They're going to say, what do you mean eight words? You can say, yeah, eight words, but they're, they're angry, but they're interested. What eight words? And then when I do presentations and I coach people, I say, say the eight words as if you're on NPR or you're on FM radio. So instead of being this factual AM radio, yada, 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 you say the eight words like this and you say, yeah, eight words. And you say, anxious, depressed, afraid, angry, ashamed, alone, lonely, tired. Pick one. And when I've done that with, over the years with suicidal people and with Kevin Hines, the fellow who jumped from the Golden Gate Bridge in our documentary, many of them they'll smile, cock their head, and say, all of them. All of them. All of them. And then if you're listening, what you say to the person next is, uh, uh, pick, pick the one uh, that's how you feel when you're feeling at your worst. And they can pick angry, ashamed. Uh, and then you follow up with, when you feel that way, how bad does it get for you? And they're opening up and they'll say, awful. And then you ask them, and when you feel that way, how alone do you feel? So if you can pick this up as me, you're opening them up. It's like opening the layers of an onion. And they may even start to tear up. And if they're tearing up, don't, don't get nervous. You're letting them cry. They're tearing up with relief. You're not making them cry. You're draining pus from an abscess that's in the hopelessness of the dark night of the soul. And then what I used to do with patients, and you can do with that person, you say, take me to one of those times recently, maybe 2.30 in the morning. And what happens is here's, here's a special thing that I've noticed as a therapist is when you can get someone to describe something so clearly that you see it when you're listening, they feel it. And when they feel it, they're going through it, but they're not alone. So like if I were to ask someone, if I were to ask you, you know, how was last year? And if you were to say, well, I lost my, uh, uh, my grandma, you know, we were close. Uh, and, you know, I could say something generic, geez, I'm sorry. But if I, if I were to say, take me to the moment when you heard she had died, you would be right back there.
Definitely. Cause you know, my mom died in 2017 and um, it's, when I think about her, I, it, it just takes me back when I heard the news, you know, and the time when she died, I was at work and I, and Mark, I just fell to my knees mm. because I was full of sorrow and I was just weeping like a baby because, mm. um, you know, and I heard the, the news, my, my mom was just a, awesome. Even now I can feel the emotion. Right. So that's what you're doing with the suicidal um, people who are depressed. You're taking them back, getting them to talk about, you know, the deepest, darkest time in life. And I can tell you, you know, because we're pressed for time and maybe we'll do this offline. But if you took me back to that and I said, so what happened when you fell to your needs? What happened next? What would happen is you would start refeeling it you wouldn't be able to do the podcast as an interview because you would be back refeeling it. Right. But, but as you're feeling it and you're feeling it with someone who's not shutting you down, but letting it just breathe, you would feel it deeply. You'd, you'd probably get to, you know, Mark, I miss her. I miss her. And I think about her and I was so grateful for her and we don't want to go there because yeah you're trying to you're making me cry now i i can feel the emotions just um you know coming up in me because i love my mom so much and uh yes what you're saying is so true and, and so these are just uh maybe we'll do another show on that because i will tell you something Esme. Uh, i have a podcast called my wake-up call and there and in nearly all of them people just personally open up and half the guests have said to me, I have never been that open in public before. And I say, you know, we don't, we don't have to post it. And all of them have said, I want people to know that side of me. You just made it safe. I want people to know that, that very human side. I don't know how you did it, but you just opened me up. And what happens is if, when people listen to my podcast, my wake-up call People, you root for the guests. You say, I like this woman. I don't even know what she does. I like this man. And what happens is they become people you root for. I'm going to find out, you know, I'm gonna, and what it is is people were just drawn to their courage of being so vulnerable. You know, hopefully, I mean, you might get some you know, bad comments, but when I relive that moment from medical school, uh, I feel it. Right. So that, that could, that could turn off some of your listeners, but others are going to say, wow, he was just, he could feel him there. And so, so um, when you, what prevented you from committing suicide? Well, I think what happened is when, when he told me that, and I think what happened is I, I started to plummet, but what he did is he saw a future for me that I didn't. He saw value in me as, as just being a human being. I didn't have to do anything because at that point, I didn't know if I could do anything. And what he did is he went to bat for me against the whole medical school. The medical school wanted to kick me out because they were losing money. If they, every time a medical student takes a year off, they lose matching funds. So he stood up for me against the medical school at his own risk. And so the fact that he saw a future for me that I didn't, and uh, uh, and then he stood up for me. It just, so I stand up for people and I go into the dark night of the soul. And it's interesting, about 15 years later, 
I, you know, I went and visited him. And I said, uh, oh, I had to appeal my, my case to the, emo uh, to the, to the uh, uh, promotions committee. And uh, it's kind of okay. You have, you have time for a funny, funny kind of anecdote? Yes, I do. Go ahead. So he could set up the appeal. He said, I'll set up the appeal, but you have to make your case. So I go into the room and you know, he's a PhD and surrounded by doctors, heads of hospitals, the dean of the school. Uh, and the guy who is the head of it is this head of surgery at one of the big hospitals. And he was someone who was universally disliked. And so people are asking me, what's going on, Mark, blah, 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 blah. And I can see he has an agenda. You know, I'm just one of the agenda items. So he interrupts and he says, okay, we, 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 you know, we, you know, we got we to gotta finish this thing up. So he starts to talk to me and he starts to grill me. And he is a big overweight guy with a cigar and he's grilling me and, and nobody liked this guy. I mean, he's a typical stereotype surgeon. And he said, um, uh, he said, and he kept grilling and he said, um, you know, I think we should both cut our losses. I don't think you can make a be a doctor, and uh, you know you know why don't you go and do something else? Um, and he said, "Why should we give you another chance?" So imagine this: I'm, it's like David and Goliath, literally. And you know, and the rest of the room is probably feeling a little bit offended that he's just. You know, and I understand he's impatient. They have an agenda. You know, they have other things to do. And I look at him, and I said, "You know, it's it hasn't been a very good year." My dad got cancer. Um, uh, I had a wife uh, who wanted to cut her losses, so uh, we broke up. I got uh, thyroid disease, and they pumped me up with certain medicines, and then I got liver problems from that. And he's looking at me, and he's saying, so, so, so. And then I just stared at him as me like I'm staring at you. And I said, um, so... I'd like to plead insanity and throw myself on the mercy of a group of doctors. Insanity. I said that. I, I mean, it, it was, it, I should have left medical school and just gone into the movies. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, you should have. <laughs> but no, it would have missed I, your talent. So I'm staring at this guy and there's tears going down my face and he just stares at me. And then, uh, he takes his cigar, he puts it on an ashtray, and he turns his seat around and he won't look at me and the whole room is quiet. And so uh, the dean of students says, uh, well, Mark, you know, why don't you go out and we'll tell you our decision. And this is the power uh, because they lose funds every year that someone takes a year off. So I go out and I'm sitting in a stairwell, you know, hunched over like, you know, this pathetic, I didn't know I was David at that point. So he comes out, he puts his arm around me, and he said, Mark, take a year, take five years. You will always be welcome back at this medical school. And so when I met with him, you know, after I finished, you know, I went back, I finished, I became a psychiatrist. And, uh, and uh, when I met with him, I said, uh, uh, I said, why did you go out of your way to stand up for me? And he looked at me and he said, because 30 years ago, someone did it for me. Wow. Yeah. And he said, uh, 
And he said, when someone does that, you have to pay it forward, which is why I became a suicide specialist. Right. And I said, well, why did they give me, grant me another leave of absence? And he said, for years, we'd been trying to shut that guy up. And nobody had been able to do it the way you did it. And when you did it and he turned around, we all looked at each other with a look that said, we're not losing this kid. Wow, that's an amazing story. Mark, that's amazing. Somebody who fought for you because somebody else fought for them. And, and you're not passing it on. I just, I think that's incredible because you're helping so many people, right? So, you know, live on this planet and not, not down, commit suicide. And uh, it, I, I really feel grateful that you're on this earth. Well, thank you. But something I want to tell your listeners, the people who haven't faded off because, you know, this was too whatever. It's, it's what? a pretty deep, it's a deep topic. It's, it's, yeah, it is a deep it's, topic. so here's what I would tell you if, if you're a woman and you're wanting to deal with the challenges. Um, uh, that Dean of Students was my first mentor. I've had seven mentors, they've all died. And what happens is I have what I call the dead mentors society. So whenever I'm dealing with adversity, and I tend to beat up on myself, I tend to get much more disappointed in myself than other people. Uh, in the past, I would have said, oh, Mark, why'd you go into that old story with Esme? This is a motivational uh, podcast. You probably, you probably mess that up. But you didn't you know, mess it up. No, no, you didn't I, mess it up because suicide I, is real. I know from experience, people you know, will say, no, no, you didn't mess anything up. But what I would, use, what I would do, and I, would, I tell women to do this, and men, is when you're feeling down, call upon in your mind's eye a living or a dead person who cared about you, who believed in you, who saw good in you that you didn't see, saw potential in you, and wouldn't let you fail, and pushed you to do something that you didn't think you were capable of and have a conversation with them. And it's interesting, as I said, when I, I do a lot of podcasts and when I'd go into the story, I'd sometimes say, Oh, Mark, you just wouldn't shut up. Uh, and I would call upon any of my dead mentors and I'd say, Oh, I did it again. I talked too much. I get into these, these sad stories and, and you'll appreciate that. You know, I can pick any dead mentor. And they say, Mark, Mark, you know, you're waking me up again. You're waking me up again. What's this about? It's, oh, I did it again. And then they say, well, what do the hosts think? And I say, I think the host liked it. <laughs> That's all that matters, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, in fact, some hosts said, uh, this was one of the most amazing interviews we've done. Ditto. <laughs> I think this is amazing. Okay, so I'm not going to have to call up a dead mentor. I'm going to let them rest in peace. Let but them rest you, in peace. <laughs> but, what you, but what you can do is, now you can call that person up, but you can think of what they would say to you. You, you know, know, that's so true because um, I, would, I can think of what my mom would say to me because she's so positive. She kept me going. And, uh, oh, yes, I know exactly okay, so, what was said so to me. Okay, so let's make it real. Let's, so imagine a time when you're down in yourself, you're feeling lost and, you know, feeling kind of alone. And 
you know, even though you know you'll intellectually you'll make it through, you're feeling bad. In your mind's eye, what do you imagine your mom saying to you? My mom would say, Esme, you have greatness in you. Don't ever give up. Keep going. Life is not easy, but keep going. Even if you fall, even if you fail, get up, keep going, because that's exactly what I did. That's exactly what my mom would say, because that's what my mom was, a very determined person. And she didn't let anything stop her. She just kept on going because her goal was to make a better life for her children in Canada. And that's what she did. And um, so, so many times people discourage her and she said, I wouldn't listen to them. I just kept going. So I know my mom's voice. And when I, when I speak to her, I, she would say, keep going as me, no matter what happened. Because the road is not full of roses, right? Keep going. Okay, so we're going to have some good radio here. You're going to need a Kleenex for this next one. Uh oh, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> so I want you to imagine speaking to her and saying, why do you believe in me so much? What would she say? Why do I believe in you? My mom would say, because I love you. And I know you have great potential in you. That's why I don't want you to fail. That's why I never want you to give up. Because you, you need to live into your potential. Yeah, but could you feel, it's, it's interesting. Because when you said, because I love you, you just felt the emotion well up. And then you went into the positive thing. But if you just sat with, because I love you, and just let it sink in, can you that, feel? That good? would tear me up. <laughs> No, no, it's not tearing you up. It's helping you feel less alone in your doubt. Right. I love that. Less alone in your doubt. And because um, when you have, you have company, um, you know, then you just feel that you can do it. Right. You know, I mean, as an athlete, I sometimes I would go to the track and I didn't feel like I didn't feel like training and I knew the workout was going to be hard. But then I have five or six people that I'm running with. It was easier. Right, because we almost like we share the load, we share the pain, and after we're done, we're like, "Oh, I'm so glad it's done." <laughs> now, now, can you think of a special, special coach who was instrumental in your career? Oh yes, actually, um, Peter Cross. He just died recently, a couple of days wow. ago. He died, and he was such wow. a special man. He was so caring, so kind. I have, I've had several coaches in my life. And uh, he was one of them that was just, he was just so kind. And when I didn't believe in myself and I was, he would say, oh, yeah, Esme, you're going to be really good. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm not going to be good. He goes, yeah, you're going to be beating that girl soon. I, and he wouldn't, he would believe in me. And I, when I wouldn't believe in myself, I had no self-confidence. You know, I was running and I was talented, but I didn't know it. <laughs> so he told me, Esme, you're talented. Esme, one of these days you're going to be on the Olympic, you're going to make the Olympic team. And it's like, yeah, right, right, sure, Peter. Thank you so much. <laughs> so, but, I, so I want you to add him to your mom and call upon them because it's interesting. You probably, uh, I don't know, your listeners may be too young, but there was a coach at UCLA named John Wooden. John Wooden was the UCLA basketball coach. Uh, Kareem went to UCLA. Bill Walton went to UCLA. He actually wrote a book, one of his lesser books, I think, The Power of Mentoring. And, and, and you hear all these famous athletes talking about Coach Wooden, and, and you can tell that one of the best parts of their life was when they had Coach Wooden, and it was just like Peter, believing in them, 
not, not letting them settle for anything less than they were capable of. And, and so if you're listening in, think of who that person might be. I'll tell you something else you can use, which I didn't use for a while. Um, use the people that are looking up to you. Like my children, probably my clients and patients, you know, you can, you can get that belief in you from the people below you who look up to you and just hope you don't turn out to be a jerk. Yeah. Just hope you don't turn out to have feet of clay. And so I think one of the reasons, I'm no saint, but I think one of the reasons I really haven't gotten into any trouble is because I want to honor the people who look up to me. I think that's, I think that's awesome because um, it's like when there's a great expectation on you, you can't fail. You have to make sure you're there for them because if they're honoring you, if they're looking up to you, they, um, you can't go and do something crazy (laughs) because um, you know, that's going to affect their life. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want them to discover, Oh, not you. Jeez. And then, and then they have to stop looking up to you. You know, my last mentor was one of the top, gurus of leadership in the world and anybody who studied leadership knows his name it was warren bennis he was out of usc and again he was you know he died a few years ago and he was so charming and he had a way with words and towards the end of his life you know he's getting a lot of tributes and i went to one of the tributes at usc and all these famous people that he'd mentor i mean he's he was an advisor to u.s presidents he mentored uh uh, uh, David Gergen from CNN. He mentored Howard Schultz from, uh, uh, from Starbucks. And so people were saying all these nice things and then it was his time to get up there. And he had a wonderful way for with words. And he said, you know, one of the, you know, one of the best things about people saying nice things about you is it gives you something to live up to. Right. <laughs> gives you something to live up to. And I think that's awesome. And on that note, Mark, Oh, thank you so much. What an awesome conversation. I love this. And, you know, I wish we could talk longer. (laughs) Thank you for, thank you for exceeding your time limit. Oh, that's fine. Anytime. So ladies and gentlemen, to learn more about Mark, go to esmelawrence.com. Thank you for listening to Sprinting to Success podcast. Thank you and have an amazing day. Hi, Dr. Mark Goldston. Uh, I'm known for writing the top book on listening in the world called Just Listen, but I'm even known for a global movement that launched called What Made You Smile Today, and, we, and the TEDx talk launched, What Made You Smile Today, where I go around every day and I uh, give out wristbands to people with name tags who serve you, but they're faceless, and I say, what made you smile today? Uh, I tell them my name, I say hello to their name, and then they stop and and they say, it's a great day. And they smile and they thank you. And I give them two wristbands. And one is, you need to smile every day because you got a killer smile. And here's a second wristband. Go give it to someone else. So you can find the movement on Instagram at WMYST Global. And I'm sprinting to success with Esme Lawrence. Woohoo! Do it too. <laughs> That's right. Yay. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Sprinting to Success with your host, Esme Lawrence. 
please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this show on iTunes. For more information about ESME and to hear other episodes of the show, go to esmelawrence.com. The information in this podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional or medical treatment or advice. Always seek advice from your healthcare provider.